Section 3 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 3. France. With Hugh Capet, 987 to 996, commences the history of the real and lasting French nation, as distinct from the Germanic Empire of Charlemagne, and therefore there is here, in many ways, a point of departure, clear cut and convenient. Yet there are drawbacks to beginning at so early a date. The small nucleus, then called France, continued to grow as such. The era is near the beginning of the 11th century. The approximate date from which I would wish to trace the histories of the various countries of Europe, and we here begin a new dynasty. But records of some periods are still very meagre, and the pen portraits of certain sovereigns far from satisfactory. However, concerning a number of reigns, even for this early period, interesting and well-known facts are sufficiently authenticated for the main purpose of this inquiry, though it may be best to treat some sovereigns with less assurance, such as Henry I, Louis the Seventh. Louis the Eighth, Philip the Fourth, Louis the Tenth, Philip the Fifth, Charles the Fourth. Even for Hugh Capet, famous though his name certainly is, materials lacking for a proper estimate of his personality and influence. Hugh Capet was probably not a very great man, though more than a mediocre one. He possessed the art of managing the turbulent men who surrounded him, and often by a subtle or conciliatory means adapted himself to the needs of his times. One must remember that the claims of Hugh were recognised by only a faction of the entire population, and his rival, Charles of Lorraine, needed to be languished. One must also consider how circumscribed in domain and power the country was over which he held the title of king, a title which had long since failed to carry any especial dignity or influence. The lawless barons were strong. To them Hugh was scarcely more than an equal, and thus to gain his ends the new king felt himself obliged to make many handsome grants of territory, so that at the close of his reign he had less land than when he began. Yet against all the warring interests of this troubled time, Hugh Capet held his own. He beat in battle the Carlovinian Clement, maintained his dignity in the face of the papacy and the empire, gave a certain meaning to the sovereign power, and had his son and successor crowned during his own lifetime. In fact, the Grand France of Recalau and Louis the Fourteenth made its modest start. Unfortunately for this embryonic nation, the next king, Robert, was not cast in the ancestral mould. For three generations, the vigour of Robert the Strong had been bequeathed to the male descendants of that redoubtable warrior. Now immensely weak, though kindly pious prince came upon the throne. The reign of Robert, 996 to 1031, was long and inglorious. A ceaseless struggle against the barons. The rising of the servile population ended in a sad slaughter of the peasants. A weak king in those days had always his own household to fear. Robert's latter years were beset with civil wars forced upon him by his own queen and only son, Henry, and Robert of Burgundy. Burgundy and the Duchy of France suffered under the ills which formed the sum of war in those days. The conditions were not improved under Henry I, who ruled during the twenty-nine years following 1031 with petty wars, civil wars, frontier wars, devastating invasion by the Normans, who came within twenty miles of Paris. France stood for nothing, and the kingly power was the same. Unfortunately, our perception of the personal character of Henry I is extremely vague. Contemporary chronicles have left nothing of value, and latter historians have described his traits in conflicting terms. 
it would be best to pass over this error entirely, for it cannot enlighten the prison problem. When Henry I died, his son Philip was then a child of seven years of age. The crown was of so little importance by this time that no one wanted it. Perhaps this is why no usurper sees the reigns, and until Philip came of age, his brother-in-law, Count Baldwin of Flanders, was willingly given the regency, which he so ably maintained. Baldwin is credited with wisdom, energy, and prudence, and he soon brought about a decided change in the affairs of France. He curbed the nobles and suppressed sedition. The country enjoyed in seven years' breathing spell, and his untimely death was regretted by all. It is true that Baldwin's regency was luckily favoured by the Norman conquest of England, which diverted the foes of France towards other plunder. Baldwin's title of Count was virtually as good as that of King. He had, moreover, married a daughter of the late King, therefore Baldwin is entitled to rank among royalty, and this period must be taken as a second example in favour of our thesis. Robert, the son of Hugh Capet, furnished the first, though in quite the opposite way. The good influence of Baldwin lasted only during his lifetime, for his royal pupil Philip did not follow the excellent example set by his kinsmen. Philip had a good education and was not deficient in natural aptitude. Yet this promising young prince developed into one of the very worst of all the early kings, and the unhappy country was soon to know the terrors of misrule. Philip was not only weak and self-indulgent, but also devoid of any virtues. He was false, honourless, and grasping, lacking in judgment and courage, a dissolute libertine of the most extreme type. Under him, France again became the scene of interminable petty warfare, dreariness and desolation. The Normans again invaded the territory of the French. Mantes says Seine was taken and burned, and the victors were pressing on even to the gates of Paris, when, fortunately for France, the Norman leader, William the Conqueror, died. When Philip was forty-seven years of age, he retired into obscurity, the most praiseworthy act of his life. His son, Louis VI, then but a mere lad of nineteen, was called upon to assume the uneasy and likewise unmeaning sovereignty. He was a man of different metal. With him came a sudden and momentous change when viewed in the light of the entire history of the French nation, for only now did France, as a true power, begin. When Louis VI took upon himself the burdens of government, the limits of the royal domain were very narrow. The pretended extent did not amount to one-tenth of the present territory of France. In reality, there was little more than the cities of Paris, Orleans, Antarms, Malun, and Compagne, for the land between was held by the robber barons at war with each other or with the king. Almost within sight of Paris itself, the enemies of France could be seen. Five miles to the north stood the lord of Montmorency with his army. Fifteen miles to the south, Montferry cut the royal domain in two by blocking the way to Orleans. There were many other rebellious chiefs on all sides. The valiant lad mustered what forces he could, and by dint of real genius for war, and ability to bring the forces of the clergy and the populace over to his side, subdued and humbled the rebels one by one. The frontiers were rendered secure. The poor found a protector, and one even sees the faint beginnings of independent communal life. All authorities agree that Louis VI was a man of very superior ability, and they likewise never fail to praise his many virtues and noble qualities. The change which came about was sudden, and a great contrast to the reigns of his predecessors. It is true that the Crusades lent their aid by diverting the attention of some of his enemies away to other lands, but aside from this, everything was against him. Louis VI had a beginning, the same feeble resources, and the same lawless barons. 
yet he overcame all obstacles and died one of the great men of his time. Another notable figure of the period was the Abe Suger, whom Louis VI prudently chose as his counsellor, and to whom much of the great work accomplished during his reign is said to be due. Fortunately for France, the influence of this shrewd and political churchman was equally great in the reign of Louis VII, at least during its early years, while this king was away on chimerical crusades. Under Suger, the country enjoyed the blessings of peace and security. The foreign policy was strong. The finances were well administered. The royal power expanded and its revenues increased. Churches sprang up, cities renewed their franchises, and more diverse something of liberty and justice was accorded to common men who glorified the name of the great prelate and called him Pater Patrie. Here was a country prospering without a great king, for Louis Seventh was at most mediocre. He was weak and pious, easily out of the dominion of the church, which fortunately had so good a leader. Louis was gentle, well-meaning, and virtuous, and indeed rather learned for the times. He may be placed in the doubtful or inferior grade intellectually, while the material conditions must be classified by the general term progress. Louis Seventh might be placed in the middle grade, but to be on the safe side, I grant this reign to count against my thesis, the importance of royalty. I do not, however, grant it against the broad theory of the preponderant influence of a certain few individual personalities, for in Sugar we find our notable man. We now come to the second of the great French kings, Philip Augustus, 1180-1223. When he began to reign alone, he was but a lad of fifteen. The vassals and barons, on account of the youth of the king, thought that now was the time to make merry with the crown. They were considerably disappointed. What certain boy kings have done in the way of dignified and successful leadership immediately after coming into their own is extraordinary. In the maturity of afterlife, these royal prodigies have always, as far as I recall, developed into superior or indeed extremely illustrious rulers. They have during their lives, times, and time again, been called upon personally to lead and direct their armies against the best generals of foreign realms, or to meet some rising tide of plotting factions within their own domestic circles. Judging by the record of the latter years, it would seem that these precocious princes must truly have been geniuses in embryo, and that their early triumphs could not have been the outcome of mere fortunate circumstances. Philip Augustus at once began to show the metal he was made of and the characteristic policy of his reign. He demanded subjection from all and took orders from no man. His untiring ambition was to get for himself and the monarchy which he represented as much as he possibly could of that power and dominion which the great feudatory chiefs had so solemnly and lawlessly administered. Being but a lad, his mother and uncles expected to keep him still in leading strings, but with the help of Henry of England and a following of young men of the realm, freelancers and paid men, Brabacons, he showed his would-be repressors that he was indeed already a king. Within five years and before he was twenty-one years old, this proud stripling grandson of the able Louis VI had won sixty-five chateaux in Vermondes, also the important city of Amiens, had vanquished Flanders and seized parts of it and had reduced to docile servitude the Prince of Champagne. It is said that he had dreams of restoring the empire of Charlemagne, and the story goes that about this time he was seen one day by his courtiers gnawing a green bough and glaring about him wildly. One of them asked him boldly what he was thinking of, and he replied, I am wondering whether God will grant me or my heirs grace to raise France once more to the heights she reached in the days of Charlemagne. 
A few years later, he had conquered Maine and Touraine, but much of this was restored. The chief work of Philip Augustus was the conquest of Normandy. This he easily brought about because his ruler, John of England, of Magna Carta notoriety, was both weak in nature and resources, and had no proper following. John's subjects, having turned against him, outraged at the murder of the little prince Arthur, Philip found an open road in taking upon himself the burden of vengeance for the lad's death. Chateau Gaillard held out for a time against the French, but John himself did nothing save fly to England. When his famous castle fell and Rouen had been taken, all Normandy readily accepted the mastery of the French king, feeling no doubt that Philip could not be worse than John, thus a large and important territory was permanently added to the French monarchy. It was a question of kings, but it was brought about more through the weakness of one king than through the strength of another. With Normandy came also those other possessions of the English crown, Touraine, Anjou, Maine, and Poitou. Francis opened the sea from the Seine to the north, and his territory was more than double in extent. The other great event of Philip Augustus's life was his signal to fate of the triple alliance formed against the French by the English, Flemings, and Germans. At the Battle of Bovines in 1214, he worsted the Emperor Otto IV and won the first great French victory. After this, Philip lived in comparative tranquility and devoted himself to the consolidation and improvement of his country. He encouraged the growth of cities, paved Paris, increased the efficiency of the army, and managed the finance as well. Industry and commerce took new life, and France was again on the upward road. Thus, a period of marked national progress is synchronous with the presence of a remarkable personality. Philip Augustus was certainly a great king. As a conqueror and administrator, he stands forth, one of the most striking figures in early French history. His intellect was that of the clear, cold, and crafty type. Ambition and force form the most conspicuous traits of his character. Further analysis of his virtues and vices must be rather uncertain owing to the dearth of contemporary records. Some say he was hard on the lower classes, some say not. It can scarcely be supposed that he was a man of tender heart or super-refined scruples. He loved wine and women, and was something given to angry fits of passion, but soon recovered himself. Whether Philip Augustus was, strictly speaking, popular or not, we cannot say, but certainly his subjects believed in him and unquestionably followed him in the great work which he laid down for himself in early life, the realisation of which he in such a great measure achieved. After the reign of Philip Augustus, there follows the brief period of three years, when Louis VIII sat upon the throne. The chief events of this reign were the submission of Lower Poitou, Limousin, and Perigord, a successful but costly crusade against the Albigenses and the granting of freedom to the serfs in the fief of Entampes. Altogether it would seem to have been a rather prosperous period. However, we know too little of the personal traits of Louis VIII to estimate his own position in the events of the time. Authorities differ as to his ability, some crediting him with vigour and understanding, others calling him weak and attributing his activity to the promptings of his queen, the famous Blanche of Castile, about whom none differ or praising her superior qualities. He appears to have been, at last, pious and chaste. Louis VIII died in his fortieth year and was succeeded by his son, Louis IX, then a boy eleven years old. Again the barons thought their time had come, but again, as in the early days of Philip Augustus, they were doomed to bitter disappointment. This time was a woman who came to the fore, Blanche of Castile, daughter of Alfonso the Noble 
and maternal granddaughter of one of England's greatest kings, Henry II. Blanche, by her powers of fascination, won over the leader of the barons, Theobald of Champagne, and then by dint of rapid action, by securing the burghers of Paris for the royal side, brought victory out of languid wars, until at last she found the country pacified, and even in the meanwhile actually extended the royal domains. The long quarrel with the Count de Toulouse came to an end, with marked advantage to France, and thus the way was paid for the gradual absorption of the South. Biocquier, Carcassonne, Beziers, Narbonne, Names, Filet, and Albigeois were added to the territory of the crown. Most worthwhile was the condition of tranquillity which Queen Blanche established as a foundation for the great work of her son, Louis IX. There seems to be no question about the high ability of Blanche, and the son was worthy of the mother, and she in her turn had been an honour to her own illustrious forebears. Blanche came of remarkable stock, and her sister, Berengaria, was one of the greatest and best of Spanish queens. Thus Louis IX, being a grandson of Philip Augustus, and considering both sides of the house, a pedigree such as is seldom met with. The expectations of hereditary did not fail, for Louis IX became one of the greatest and best of French kings, and all in all, one of the best and noblest characters of his time. After her son reached his majority, and even up to the time of her death, the Queen Mother did not cease to lend her counsels and take an important part in the affairs of state. The whole period of Louis IX is forty-four years of signal prosperity. The chivalrous and pious king must needs, following the craze of the times, make two unprofitable and futile crusades. Yet even such mistakes were not serious, and he reaped a certain glory. During the first of these crusades, the Queen Mother successfully managed affairs at home. The second was a brief duration. It lasted but a few months, when the king contracted the fever which cost him his life. On the side of progress, there was a great deal to more than outweigh these two ill-timed expeditions. Most important of all, the country remained within its own borders in a state of quietude, while justice was well administered. Population, commerce, and industry increased, and with it the total wealth of the land. This is especially shown by the great number of public buildings such as hospitals, asylums, churches, and abbeys which sprang up. In addition to his great work of quieting feudal hostility and of destroying the strongholds of feudal independence, he had largely to the actual domain of the crown. Louis IX, who in his day was King of Kings, the idol of his people, had lost no luster in the passing centuries. He was canonized shortly after his death. For long ages, his anniversary was solemnly kept by the French people, and to this day, the name of Saint Louis stands among the very foremost of French history. He was not a great general. He was perhaps too scrupulously conscientious for that. But as an example of what one man may accomplish when the higher moral purposes are united to a steadfast aim, the patron saint of the French illustrates in the strongest way the force which springs from personal character. Philip III, 1270-1285, was a weak, ignorant, though pious prince, guided entirely by his counsellors. These were mostly lawyers and seemed to have known how to maintain the royal authority now that it was so well established. Internal tranquillity remained, but this is the most that can be said to its advantage. The actual territory of the crown was increased, but this came through inheritance and not by conquest. Languedoc, Fivres, and Lourage fell to Philip through the extinction of the house of St. Gilles with the deaths of his uncle and wife. 
Francis Eve to her external relations, a distinct check in two serious disasters, the Sicilian Vespers and the victory of Roger de Laria, which derived Charles Van Gogh, uncle of Philip III of the throne of Naples. Furthermore, an expedition led into Aragon by Philip III himself met with poor success and cost the king's life. Philip III was followed by Philip IV, Louis X, Philip V, and Charles IV. We know too little about the personal traits of these kings to bring their history into the discussion. The whole generation, 1285 to 1328, was one of confusion and in general one of decline. It is natural to feel that if these kings had been distinctly able, the records concerning them would not be so meagre. After the death of Charles IV, we come upon firmer ground. The character of Philip VI is very clearly drawn. He was brave and headstrong, and as ambitious for military fame as he was for the idle glory of pomp and tournament. But he was totally lacking in most of the qualities useful in the king. Moderation and ideas of justice were far removed from his mind. Though pierced and possessed of some generous impulses, he was vain, false, heartless, and violent, and worst of all for France, no high ability compensated. His reign must be marked as a great beginning of woes to his nation. Philip tampered with the coin of the realm, and by vexatious restrictions interfered with, and in fact, almost stopped the course of trade throughout France. Thus he alienated the merchants and burghers, and at the same time dried up the source of revenue. Commerce ceased to pass through France. France was in a state of desolate barbarism, her people sunk in misery. In one respect alone did the kingdom seem to gain. Philip brought Vienne and the district, then city of Montpellier, to pay for which he debased the coin. Thus ended a dark and melancholy reign. All things seemed to be evil in France. Oppression, war, pestilence, faithlessness, and king and people, days of shame and distress. It was during the reign of Philip VI that the overwhelming French defeat at Crecy occurred at the beginning of the hundred years which placed France in chaos. Another king was exactly like Philip VI follows, and also a similar reign. John II, the son, appears to have inherited his traits exclusively from his father, Philip VI. He is described as rash, ignorant, obstinate, incapable, passionate, cruel, self-indulgent, gay, and luxurious. He was called Le Bon, because he loved tournaments and dances. Affairs of state were left to weak administrators. France suffered a great defeat at Poitiers, 1356. Everything went wrong. Finances were wasted. Taxes were excessive. Bands of lawless soldiery ranged the land. Anarchy was alone supreme. John himself was taken captive into England, little of a prize that he was, and his son Charles, afterwards known as Charles the Wise, ruled as regent during the four years' absence of this monarch. Charles, at the beginning of his regency, was but nineteen years of age, and though in later life he well merited the epithet which history has bestowed on him, at that period of his career, Charles was anything but the wise. He was only a foolish, extravagant youth, rather indifferent to the seriousness of the situation. During the absence of John, darkness and confusion continued throughout France. The Jacquerie, an organization of the peasantry, made an unsuccessful attempt to govern Paris and wreak revenge upon the nobles. There was a further financial decline, and at the end France had to submit to the humiliating peace of Bretigny, 1360, which he gave up to England a vast extent of territory and agreed to pay a ransom for their king of three million francs.
France is now smaller than she had been under Philip Augustus. No clearer picture of the miseries of the times and the utter dejection to which the nation had fallen can be drawn than in the words of the unfortunate and pernicious King John himself. This oft-quoted passage appeared in connection with a certain ordinance which he issued about this time, in which the king takes occasion to excuse the shame of the peace of Bretigny. By the space of four years and over have we, and this our people, ever sustained and suffered many ills, discomforts, and griefs. For as these grew daily worse and worse, tidings come to us how that the people of our realm were divided, and were slaying and destroying each other, and giving themselves up to rebellion and disobedience, and were committing divers horrible and enormous crimes, such as made it plain that had such things gone on, our realm and people would have been utterly destroyed, with addition of all they had. Wherefore, all things considered, we made the aforesaid peace, for we have found that in our own realm there have been divisions and rebellions, robbery, pillage, arson, larcenies, seizures, violence, oppressions, exactions, extortions, and many other cruel misdeeds and excesses. Justice is administered, many new taxes levied, and much seizing, carrying off and putting to ransom the personages, stores, horses, beasts, and other goods, whereby all industry is at an end. It would seem that the king imagined that this woeful state of affairs was somehow associated with his own enforced absence. He had indeed little ground for such a vain belief. King John returned to France for a brief space and then went back again into English captivity. During these years of John's return to France, 1360 to 1364, Charles also acted as regent, but he had not yet begun to show the exceptional strength and practical wisdom for which he became famous after the death of his father, who fortunately for France was taken off in 1364. These four years were years of disorder and misery, without a soul to hold the anarchy in check. The free companies ranged the land, and want and pestilence added to the awful scene. With the actual reign of Charles V occurred a remarkable change, both in the character of the king himself and in the visible conditions of the country. Charles was now twenty-seven years of age. He had always been crafty in furthering his aims and not devoid of natural ability, but he had shown himself indifferent to affairs of state. A spendthrift in his habits, and a poor and cowardly soldier in the field. Now he took to work and directed everything. He worked hard in his own methodical, mysterious, and scheming way. Shut up in his closet, a sinister figure not unlike Philip II of Spain, with all the strings of government leading from his own person. Charles V never himself took the field, but he knew how to choose the ablest commanders to do the fighting for him, and found in Du Gusclin and others men to carry out his most pressing needs, the abolition of the roving free companies and the expulsion of the English from French soil. The king shrewdly turned the one against the other and sent the free companies to fight the English, who were then with the Black Prince in Spain. It is not necessary to go into details regarding all the warfare of this reign. It is sufficient to say that Charles's policy was successful, that the tottering monarchy again became the powerful and that law and order were re-established. The English were gradually driven back to their island, until at the close of his reign, scarcely anything of importance remained to them within the confines of present Europe. In addition to accomplishing this weighty task, general peace and order led to an increase in the general prosperity of all classes. The internal administration was good and the financial condition improved. The taxation was no doubt heavy and enforced on clergy and lay folk alike, 
but in return there was peace and security during which men could work. Charles V was unquestionably a very able sovereign, and the true fountainhead from which the various beneficial measures sprang. Thus the fourth important period of French growth, 1364 to 1380, was under the leadership of the fourth distinctly superior king, the other three being Louis VI, 1100 to 1137, Philip Augustus, 1180 to 1223, and Louis Ninth, 1263-1270. The brilliant reign of Charles V was followed by the minority of Charles VI, some eight miserable years, until his half-witted youth came to his legal majority. Years of discretion, Charles VI never attained. The guidance of the government was entrusted to his three uncles, a worthless trio. Each worked for his selfish interests. The ruling power was so much divided that it was difficult to correlate the traits of any one or all of them with the condition of times. The period illustrates the rapid cessation of progress and order as soon as a rugged king was removed by death, and no other suitable person was on hand to take his place. The rule of the uncles was disastrous for France. No good government seemed possible for that unhappy land. Charles VI was feeble-minded even as a youth. Before he reached full manhood, his mind gave way entirely. Influenced partially by debauchery, and he was, ever after, exempt for lucid periods of short duration, a mad king. The same dismal political and economic conditions returned to France as in the reign of the weak and useless John. Since the death of Edward III and the Black Prince, England had been falling back under her own weak king, Richard II, while France had been steadily rising under the leadership of Charles the Wise. Now under Charles the Mad, the reverse was to take place, and there is no more gloomy period in French history than the coming fifty years. France lost the Dagen court. Ruin was taken by the English. To add to this were burdens from excessive taxation and riots and turbulence of civil wars, as the country was torn asunder under various factions. Moreover, Burgundy, under a line of able dukes, was gradually overshadowing the French monarchy. This inglorious period lasted all through the reign of Charles VI, and continued unabated for about seven years into the reign of his successor, Charles VII. The turn in the tide is again synchronous with the appearance of a remarkable personality, but this time it is no royal will that stems the onrushing current of disillusion. It is a poor peasant girl of Domery, whose inspired leadership is to rouse the French nation and turn defeat into victory and mark an epoch in the upbuilding of France. With the siege of Orleans in 1429, the fortunes of the French were at their lowest ebb. The city was about to surrender. Joan of Arc personally led and inspired the troops and raised the siege. Whatever may have been the secret of her mysterious power, the years which followed demonstrated that the relief of Orleans was indeed the end of the long period of decline which, broken only by the reign of Charles the Wise, had been dragging on in France for more than a hundred years. The maid of Orleans was not permitted to serve long in the deliverance of her country, but before her death the English were already broken. Charles VII did nothing to save the incomparable heroine, to whom he owed his throne, and in fact did little at any time that can evoke the historian's praise. He was a shallow, lazy, self-indulgent prince, temporarily browsing himself, but ever sinking back in debauchery. His end was wretched in the extreme, and he died beset by terrors and delusions almost as insane as his father, Charles VI. 
Charles VII, however, was not without prudence, patience, and judgment, and in the choice of servants he was particularly fortunate. He was indeed the well-served, sometimes also called Charles the Victorious, but his victories were the victories of others, to which Joan of Arc, the able Dunois, and the Dauphin, afterwards the crafty and celebrated Louis XI, contributed. During the reign of Charles VII, the English were driven out of all France, save three seacoast towns. Taxation was regulated. A standing army was organized and well established. Lawlessness was suppressed and finances were reformed. Yet this reign could not be taken as counting to the credit of royalty. Charles VII may belong to the doubtful class of plus or minus as far as mental qualities are concerned, or he may belong to the inferior group. It is difficult to say. The general misery which accompanied the Hundred Years' Wars did not by any means disappear yet. All in all, the conditions of France was clearly one of progress, and we shall take the king at minus to be on the safe side, and let this reign stand as an exception. The son of Charles VII had rendered great assistance to his father, but he had also turned in rebellion against him. He had filled his father's mind with strange terrors, until, his besotten intellect giving away, he died of starvation, fearful lest the sun should poison him. The son became one of the best-known kings in history, the notorious old schemer Louis XI. We think of him as a sly, suspicious, and heartless creature, a rat-like contriver of mischief. It is hard to find his personal moral virtues, yet France grew notably stronger in many ways under this silent, sinister, despotic ruler. Perhaps Louis XI really had the good of his country at heart, when on his deathbed he expressed his only wish that he might live to put the affairs of state in a little better order. As it was, a great work had been accomplished. In the first place, the actual territory of France was greatly enlarged. Furthermore, it was unified and strengthened, and rendered a compact and powerful entity. With security within its borders, trade and commerce, especially the cities and corporations, and the silk and mining industries, made rapid advance. The country grew richer, and although the taxes were heavy, they could well be borne. There was undoubted progress on the economic side during this reign. The only serious point against the administration of Louis XI was that the strongly centralized government seriously undermined the personal liberties of the people. It is said to have prepared the way for the France of Recoleau and Louis XIV, but that, as in May, the marks of territorial and economic growth are so noteworthy, and the ambition, industry, and ability of the king so well acknowledged, that the reign affords a clear example of marked progress under an exceptionally able, though morally deformed ruler. The next period, a regency during the minority of Charles the Eighth, was entrusted to his sister Anne, who proved exceptionally gifted. She was energetic and well-informed, firm, wise, and prudent. Like her father, her virtues were not her strong point. She was an austere and haughty temperament, selfish, perhaps unscrupulous in her methods, but as far as the results of her rule of eight years were concerned, they were all on the favourable side. Intrigues and revolts were suppressed. France triumphed over the rivalry of Austria. The Allies were defeated. Brittany was forced to submission. There was even one important internal reform, a new method of election of the States General. Charles VIII, unfortunately, did not resemble his elder sister and inherit the superior ability of their father. No contrast could be greater than that between Louis XI and Charles VIII, called the Affable who in 1491 married and began to rule dependent of the regent. 
He was then 21 years of age, a self-willed prince, deformed in body and weak in mind. He was indeed admirable and gracious and filled with romantic ambition, but lacked judgment and his education had been seriously neglected. To ignorance he added debauchery, so there is little to be said in his praise. Foolish and quixotic, the story of his reign reflects the character of the man. The chief event was the Italian campaign, part of that ill-advised and useless chain of events in which the princes of France laid claim to the throne of Naples and Sicily. What Charles VIII conquered, he soon lost, and the wars only wasted the resources of France and brought no advantage. During the reign of Charles VIII, France also lost Sectan, Rosalind, Burgundy, and Artois. Trade and industry remained about the same, but the reign as a whole was certainly a weak one, and the king both mentally and morally a minus quantity. During the reign of Louis XII, 1498 to 1515, there are a number of points which definitely account on the side of progress. The finances were brought into good order. There was improvement in the army, as well as in the condition of agriculture and in the administration of justice. The arts from Italy, especially architecture, made a notable advance. It does not appear that the king himself was strongly influential in this upward movement, except in so far as he relied on able ministers, chiefly d'Amboise, though perhaps he had the good of the people at heart. Louis XII is altogether a puzzling character to understand, undoubtedly a bon enfant, a humane king, except in war, when he was correspondingly cruel. Louis XII was far too lazy and self-indulgent, and too often narrow a mind to bring about the marked improvements of his reign. A leading authority says that his intellect was superior to that of Charles VIII, but not above mediocrity. His lack of judgment allowed him to be drawn into Italian affairs, and this foreign policy was always weak. Yet on the whole, this period must be considered one of progress, and altogether the ability of Louis XII may properly belong in the middle grade, but for the sake of being in a secure position, I will place him in the minus or inferior category. This is the third and last example in French history in where the intellectual rating of the king and the conditions of the country fall in diametrically conflicting grades. Much may be said on both sides concerning the reign of France is the first, and also there is much to be said pro and con in regard to the mental endowments of the king himself. He was brilliant and accomplished, called the king of culture, brave and ambitious, but his gifts were superficial and his chivalry a mockery. Though shallow in brain and heart, Francis was undoubtedly an exceptional man and played a great figure in his day. The marked advance in wealth, industries, agriculture, and internal trade, the increase in population, especially the new skilled artisans from Florence, and the judicial reforms may be taken as offsetting the high taxation and the wasting resources in foreign wars. These wars were, on the whole, neither successful nor unsuccessful. They bought no new territory, yet France, beset as she was, by many powerful enemies, held her own, and in the end remained intact. The wars continued through the reign of Henry II, 1547-1559, ending in the peace of Chateau-Cambresis. The terms of this treaty showed the indecisive result of the long conflict waged chiefly against the House of Habsburg. Financial resources suffered a further decline, and likewise, as in the period of Francis I, industry continued to advance. The reign of Henry II falls in the doubtful grade. Henry himself had little influence on the affairs of his time. It was really the reign of the constable Anne of Montmorency, Diana of Poitiers, and the Duke of Guise. 
Henry was of mediocre or inferior intelligence, dull, gloomy, and obstinate. He was perhaps honest, and not evil in his intentions, but his character lacked strength and was much under the influence of his aged mistress, Diana of Poitiers. Francis II was sixteen years old at the time of his father's death. Being a feeble, sickly, backward youth, the government of the nation fell naturally into the hands of others. In a divided regency, they intrigued for power, until the king died, a year and a half after his ascension. The dukes of Guise, Charles and Francis, had charge of the civil and military affairs, respectively, while Catherine de Medici was regent in title but without influence. This divided state of the regency is reflected in the conditions of the times. Violence, party factions, civil and religious strife made up the story of France during these sorry months. This condition continued during the minority of Charles IX, younger brother of the late king. The religious wars injured mercantile and industrial activity, but there are several points on the favourable side. Catherine de Medici was now sole regent. This remarkable and gifted woman, so notorious for her unscrupulous career, had the good sense to appoint as Prime Minister Michael Le Hopital. To him are ascribed the measures taken to reduce the debt and to place the finances in a better condition, and also the reforms of the administration of justice. To the credit of France, we may add that Havre was retaken in 1563. Thus the minority of Charles IX, so troubled by the religious wars, was not a period of frank decline. Whether these favourable aspects outweigh the unfavourable is impossible to say. I shall allow this regency to rest in the doubtful class. At the head of affairs was a woman of indisputable ability, devoid of moral sense. In 1571, Charles IX became 21 years old. Therefore, the next three years must be charged to him, although his personal influence was very slight. He was a poor, weak, facilitating creature, diseased in mind and body, immoral and dishonourable, completely under the control of Italian partisans. The religious wars and party struggles plunged France deeper still in ruin and destitution. Taxes became heavier, trade and industry made further decline. Nor did the debacle cease under Henry III, idle, childish and dissipated, one of the weakest of kings both mentally and morally. France reached her lowest point since the Hundred Years' War. National decadence can go no further than the condition pictured in this single word, anarchy. Either a foreign power takes control of a great man arises in the realm. Now, under the white plume of Nevers came forward another Henry of the royal blood of France, who was destined to bring an end to all the civil wars. Henry of Nevers, afterwards Henry the Great, or Fourth of France, found a way to solve the difficulties of his time. We need not enter into the question of the motives which led to abjuration of his religion for the sake of the crown, or into the details of the wars which ended in a triumph for reason and toleration. It's sufficient to recognise first that whatever may have been the faults of Henry the Fourth, he was a king of decidedly superior ability, and second that during his regime, France prospered immensely. The founder of the Bourbon dynasty was not a man of good education or high moral character, but he possessed, nevertheless, in a conspicuous degree, certain qualities which enabled him to shine, first and always as a leader of men, and to live even to this day as a great hero of the French people. Henry Quatre, their beau ideal of warrior, a statesman and a king. Gifted with tremendous energy, dauntless courage, and an intellectual fervour at once vigorous and sane, his example and eloquence inspired everyone. France had long needed a master. The master had at last arrived. We see in his later life, selfishness, sensuality, 
light-hearted and gratitude. But all through his reign, we cannot fail to admire the outward marks of his great achievements and the glorious change in the condition of France. First of all, peace and order were secured and maintained. Then in 1597, the king took the Lord of Rosny, afterwards famous as the Duke of Sully, as his right-hand man, and the Herculean reforms began. France advanced in practically every way that a country's material interests can advance. Financial reforms, improvement in the army, better roads, more bridges, the beginnings of canals, the remodelling of Paris, advance in agriculture, increase in trade industry, and the acquisition of new and important territory are the marks of the reign of Henry IV. He was one of the four greatest kings of France, and it was in his reign that France experienced one of her four greatest periods of material progress. An abrupt change took place in 1610 with the assassination of Henry IV. Now a great man had gone, and a scheming, capricious woman found her way to the helm of state. Mary de Medici, who acted as regent during the uninspiring years when Louis XIII was a youth, has little to recommend her in the eyes of the historian. Her methods were petty, her ideals low, and her capacity was of a narrow and inferior order. Her government being always in a state of indecision and feebleness, the foreign prestige of France was considerably weakened. Industry experienced a sudden check, and the burdens of taxation increased, while various grandees depleted the treasury. The royal power did not diminish, but it passed into acknowledgedly weak hands, and the regency of Marie de Medici became a period of frank decline. In 1670, the influence of this woman came to an end, and her favourites, the Consigny, were put to death. Louis XIII was then 16 years of age. From this time until December 1621, neither incompetent or unscrupulous person, de Lernese, held the chief control. Conditions continue as before, with no glory to record for these four years of confusion and intrigue. The Huguenots took heart and organised themselves very strongly, threatening even complete political severance from France. The attack in Languedoc was unsuccessful and cost the lives of many French soldiers, among them de Lernes himself. He died of malignant fever, December 21st, 1621. This seems a suitable date to consider as beginning the true reign of Louis Thirteenth, although he had been declared officially of age in 1614, when only 13 years old. He was now nearly 21, and must be considered the sovereign ruler of France, Joseph Recolo, who, from this time on, did in fact control everything, had not at all existed. No example of a weak king made glorious by a great minister is better known or more quickly cited than that of Louis Thirteenth who was so completely overshadowed by the personality of Recolot. But if the internal conditions of the country are examined in the light of modern opinions, it is questionable if, even here, France made genuine progress under non-royal leadership. There are excellent examples of incontestable growth under feeble kings, but this does not happen to be one of them. Of the outward splendour there can be no doubt, nor will any one question the enhanced political prestige which made France the centre of the political stage and kept her in a limelight during the world movements of that century. The policy of Reichelieu may be summarised under three heads. Humiliation in the House of Austria, centralisation and aggrandizement of the monarchical power, and suppression of the Huguenots. In all this it was eminently successful. The armies of France were, in the end, everywhere victorious, and all parties and powers bowed to Reichelieu's will. Even some new territories like Sedan, Rosalind, and Catalonia were added to the crown. 
Yet there are several serious charges brought against the administration of the great cardinal, a regime which, in point of time, coincides almost exactly with the reign of Louis Thirteenth. The great wars could not be carried on except at an equal financial cost, and the absolute centralization could not be instituted save at the expense of personal liberty and civic independence. While the taxes increased, the lavishness of the government augmented beyond all bounds, and the deficit steadily grew. Internal discord and conspiracies were common. Although the manufacture of certain luxuries like silk and tapestries increased, especially in Paris, trade and industry made on the whole but little advance. Commerce with the Levant and with the North American colonies declined, and furthermore, the common people as a whole were impoverished rather than enriched during this famous period of outward glory. The king himself was unquestionably a weak man. The period itself must be placed in the middle grade. On the death of Louis Thirteenth, Anne of Austria became regent. Her intellect was of the narrow, intriguing type, lacking in depth and political capacity. Neither in virtues nor in vices was she a striking figure. The eight years of her regency resembled very closely the reign of Louis Thirteenth. France gained outwardly and politically. The Treaty of Westphalia brought prestige and territory, but the strictly internal conditions continued on the downward road. Taxes became more burdensome, while public and private wealth declined, as did commerce and agriculture. We now come to the famous reign of Louis XIV, which, long and complicated as it was, may be judged and described in a very few words. The first portion, up to 1683, was a period of progress. The last portion was just as certainly one of decline. This is so generally agreed upon, relates to, and includes such a complete summary of all conditions of political and material affairs, that further details are necessary. France first progressed, and then in turn degenerated. It has not seemed possible to satisfy oneself whether, at the end of the reign, the nation was actually better off or worse off than it was at the start. The personal characteristics of the sovereign were all well marked, and few monarchs have left a better defined or more generally remembered portrait of themselves in the pages of history than Louis the Fourteenth. The vain and egotistical figure, with the high heels, great wig, and the walking stick, the admired centre of all things, goes strutting through the dazzling but artificial age. Yet the very fact that Louis the Fourteenth was able to keep so much power and command so much glory speaks something for the personality of the man. The Sun King was certainly no ordinary mortal. He had a great capacity for work, an unbounded ambition, a good knowledge of men and of methods to gain his ends, and had what was perhaps more essential in enabling him to play his part with such selfish success, an uncorrupted will which seldom bowed to another's wishes. The long reign of Louis the Fourteenth was followed by the regency of the brilliant and dissolute Duke of Orleans, 1715-1723 the conditions here being also in the middle grade. On the one hand, weak diplomacy and a financial disorder. On the other, improvements in agriculture, road, canals, trade and industry. The regency of the Duke of Orleans was followed by that of the Duke of Bourbon, 1723 to 1726. This brief period appears to have been weak, both from the financial and diplomatic standpoint. For Bourbon himself, there is no good word. His mind was brutal, his character greedy and debauched. He was completely under the influence of his mistress, the Marquis de Prix. Five years' ministry of the Cardinal de Fleury begins us to 1731, the time when Louis XV was twenty-one years of age. For the sake of being consistent, I will charge these five years to non-royal rule, and the years after the king himself. 
Fleury's rule was not strong for good or for evil. If no great reforms market, still it was free from exacting tyranny. The picture on the whole, however, as gained from the consensus of opinion, is rather favourable than otherwise. The government of Fleury extended twelve years further into the reign of Louis XV, and its total value in the end may be somewhat problematical. But I shall take these first five years, which alone concern us here, as beneficial or plus in the rating. Louis XV, who held the throne till 1774, proved himself, both as man and king, one of the weakest and most despicable of all royalty. He had little capacity, and he is only famous as a libertine, timid, indolent, and sensuous. He was, at the same time, cold-blooded and indifferent to the sufferings of others. One finds nothing good in his make-up, his long reign covering the half of the 18th century is one of the least glorious in the annals of France. The Seven Years' War was a great disaster and Canada was lost. The political and military affairs of the country took on a most decadent aspect. Commerce and agriculture declined. The financial condition approached bankruptcy, while taxes became more and more burdensome, until the peasantry were reduced to the most extreme misery. The wretched conditions multiplied until even the dull wit of the king saw ahead the deluge which would so soon to sweep away a rotten structure and bring an end to his ancient line. Following the death of Louis the Fifteenth, the conditions improved for a time in the reign of Louis the Sixteenth. Under Turgot, 1774-1776, financial and agricultural betterment is apparent, and during the American Revolution, France grew stronger through her victories on land and sea and through her diplomatic successes. By the latter half of the reign of Louis the Sixteenth, presenting, as it does, one of the most frightful pictures in European history, must be held to more than outweigh the earlier years of moderate improvement. Whatever may be thought of the ultimate effects of the French Revolution on the progress of France, and on the world as a whole, the actual ten years preceding the execution of the king were years of marked decline. The national finances were so depleted that the country found itself again on the verge of bankruptcy. The army reached a stage of utter confusion. Famine and misery increased among the lower classes until the reign ended in the anarchy of the revolution. The intellectual standing of Louis the Sixteenth himself is not particularly easy to fix, for he seems to belong somewhere between mediocrity and marked deficiency. Probably he more justly belongs to the lower grade. He was undoubtedly weak and vacillating, and timid at times, although courageous enough at the last. All his acts appear to have been governed by ill-timed obstinacy and a general lack of judgment. He was truly well-meaning and had many private virtues, but as a king he was certainly a complete failure. Looking backward over the entire reign of French history from the time of Hugh Capet to the Revolution, the summaries in the appendix show that the correlation is very high between rulers and political and economic changes. There are 45 periods, 27 of which give identical symbols, a ruler plus, paralleled by, plus conditions, etc. There are only three cases of conflict. The first of these exceptional instances is a progress under the, the weak Louis the Seventh, which seems to be part due to the leadership of Suger, and in part to the expression of a social change which invigorated town growth during the Zero. Again during the 15th century, in the age of Joan of Arc, France progressed under a weak king. This continued after the death of the maid, and does not seem ascribable to any one person. Various and general causes of game seem contributory to the reign of Louis the Twelfth. On the whole, it is somewhat surprising that only three cases of conflict can be found in the forty-five periods. France has had a large population for a very long time, 
for centuries prior to the revolution the population of france was many times as great as that of great britain in most forms of genius france has not been behind her ancient rival but in the kind of genius which makes a statement all history or metric research shows france to be deficient the french as a people have never shown any great ability in government the history from the tenth to the nineteenth century proves that little material or political progress was made by the latin race except under the guidance of a royal stock essentially germanic scandinavian in its origin end of section three